This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. And so the most exciting Premier League season for years seems to have lost its best scriptwriters just before the final day. The title is done. It was done on Saturday night after Arsenal lost at Forest. Manchester City's brackets reserves, they're still quite good, played in the sun against Chelsea and everyone was happy. Their relentlessness and the asterisks have been discussed a lot, but we have a City-heavy panel to analyse it again. Drink it in. Forest win at Everton's late point means that Leeds really needed something at West Ham yesterday and they wilted. Big Sam, joyous at finding a fiver when his side led, hasn't provided the vibe his side needed. In the European race, Liverpool's winning march is held up by improving Villa, which means Newcastle and Manchester United are basically in the Champions League. Spurs continue to do their best to avoid Europe altogether. Harry Kane finally scoring a free kick. Nothing left for him to do there while Brighton are in the Europa. That'll be good. Also today, the playoffs, uh, mainly Sheffield Wednesday's extraordinary comeback against Peterborough Joy for Darren Moore. All that plus more fallout from Philip Schofield's departure from this morning. Your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. on the panel today. Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello, Max. Hello, Nader Manuha. Good morning, sir. Hello, Will Unwin. Hello, Max. Uh, let's start then. Um, I guess at the Etihad, we'll do Forest Arsenal in a second, but Man City were already champions. They played Chelsea. They beat them 1-0 in a game that's arguably wasn't a classic. Uh, we've spoken at length about their season uh, after that win over Real Madrid, uh, but we have two of their greatest ambassadors <laughs> on the pod today. So uh, let's have a word on the title from both of them. Uh, starting with you, Nadam. Okay. So I remember the feeling when Arsenal were eight points clear. I think it was at game week 29. And for most of the season, I genuinely believed that Arsenal were going to do it because of the fact that they obviously had the points on the board, but they were playing really, really well. So it feels a bit of a surprise that now there's a massive point swing and City have managed to win it with two games to spare. But credit to City, in my opinion, for being able to just churn out those results. And even though, you know, from from the outside, you do see the results and say, oh, they've won 12 in a row, whatever it is. But when you watch those games, not every game has felt like it was that Real Madrid game in midweek. There have been times where they've had to toil, had to toil away from home, at home. And again, to put it into perspective, and listen, I'm trying not to make this about me, but I'll make this about me for a second, yeah. So I played in a charity game on Saturday. And when I woke up on Sunday, I was like, oh my God, did I used to do this for 16 years? And then I think about these guys that have to do it for 60 times in a season and not be in a position and be in a position whereby they can't afford to slip up. I think the level of like professionalism, the talent, the mentality, all that stuff that exists within that group of people has led to them winning another Premier League title. And even though some people say, oh, that's five and six and so on and so forth, is it? It's pointless. Like there have been some really good races in that time. And there have only been two blowouts, one from Liverpool and one from Man City in terms of the title race. But as I say, they've been so good. They've kicked on at the times when they needed to. They obviously needed the favour from Arsenal, but I think a lot of people say that they are the deserved winners because they've been the most consistent overall throughout the season. Will? Very pleased to see the levelling up process in action that two lads from East Manchester have made it onto the podcast. So this is <laughs> this is about as good as, <laughs> good as it's going to get with the levelling up. Um, yeah, it's I, I thought when we beat Arsenal away that that would, did so much damage to the mindset of Arsenal that City were just going to chase them and chase them and were, and were a better team. There's no getting away from that. City took time to get into the season, needed a, you know, a few tinkerings within the setup, which was mainly John Stones moving into his lovely hybrid role from 
right back, centre back, central midfield, however you want to put it. Um, and just once that momentum started, you know, you could see it, whatever the game was, I was at the Everton game the other week where Everton just sat back and with men behind the ball, it looked really difficult. Like City weren't going to break them down for a long period, didn't have a shot until after the half hour mark, but just had that confidence, that consistency with passing and not worrying about it. And then Gundogan produced a moment of magic, you know, and it was just a sign, I thought then, that, you know, how good this City team were, that whatever the opposition, whether it was Leeds the week before, who just sat with, you know, 11 men behind the ball and Big Sam desperate to try and find a five on the side of the pitch to distract him from what was happening. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's been the most ruthless championship title win, just pure efficiency. Like the City team is not as exciting as the early Guardiola days, but it doesn't, it's just a machine. It's a winning machine and that's what it is. Like I spent most of the first half against Real Madrid in the stands just laughing at the fact that I'm watching Manchester City utterly dominant against a, <laughs> the Real Madrid team. And there was no doubt about winning against Real Madrid. So, you know, there was never much doubt about beating, you know, 19 of a Premier League team. So it's been an incredible season and it's testament to what Guardiola can do as a coach. And, you know, <laughs> few teams are really going to challenge him for, for the, ne- the next three or four years as long as Guardiola stays. I think it's quite an interesting point, uh, Barry, that, that um, Nadem makes about they have had to toil in some of these games. And, you know, they've had to go on this great run. Because I don't know if it's just, I'm just so conditioned by what happened yesterday but I, or, you know, in the last week that it's felt inevitable for me forever and I feel a bit like, oh, God, not City again. And is that slightly unfair? Like, if City had, if they just started this run a bit later and won it on the final day and it had been, like, really dramatic, would I have a different feeling about, rather than just a kind of, meh, City have won the league again? Well, there was a time... A fair while ago, but not not too long ago, where you were asking us, you know, who who's going to win the title? And I think I said Arsenal. I think I said Ar- I think Arsenal will do it. And they had that lead. Just the sheer relentlessness of City has meant they won. And and just I've not been nitpicky here, but just to prevent the pile on on Nedum, uh, they won it with three games to spare, not two. Um, I would have thought there's no chance of that happening, you know, when Arsenal had that lead. I expected them to be reined in a bit, but I thought they might be good enough to hold on. Uh, But I think the game at the Etihad between Arsenal and City changed everything because City were so much better than them. And I think that's when Arsenal's players sort of, I wouldn't say threw in the towel, but the doubt set in and... They weren't able to cope with the pressure. You know, they'd, they'd already had a couple of bad results. And, you know, City are seriously, seriously good. And I think when we're doing our predictions for how the table will be next season, at the start of the season, I think every single person is going to have City at the top. And then the next six or eight places are completely up in the air, you know. <laughs> but there'll be wildly varying uh, selections. But yeah, I, I think everyone will have City down to win. Now, my, I've no idea if it will happen. I don't know if it's even a possibility. But if City were to complete the treble or to win the Champions League, is there a chance Pep Guardiola might decide to to leave and quit? You know, at at that, having got the the Champions League monkey off his back, uh, maybe not. But I. That would be make things interesting, certainly, if he did. 
clearly like this title can't be as exciting and as fun as Aguero, right? I mean, I, I don't, perhaps, you know, Aguero and Dickov, like to get better than that, you'd have to, I guess you'd have to come back from three down to win the Champions League, right? But, but like how much fun is it? That Aguero goal ruined everything for me. You know, you're never going to, you're never going to get that high again. <laughs> Um, it was it was better than my daughter being born. It was incredible. I've never celebrated a moment like it. And so to reach that high is a, an impossibility. I've, you know, obviously, maybe you know, for me personally, maybe winning the Champions League in the last minute of extra time with Scott Carson scoring a header that might compete if I was in the stadium. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 not as exciting. It's incredible to watch as a concept what Guardiola does and all those things that you can do. And nowadays, I'm not sort of you know the archetypal fan, and I wouldn't I wouldn't take me as the representative of the fans' voice. I take my enjoyment in different things, seeing what Harlan can do, seeing those movements, seeing the goals that he scores that you know other strikers of the past that I wouldn't do the De Bruyne passes that you know pick 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 through holes that no one else will see on the pitch. I take my enjoyment from that. And yeah, it's never going to be as exciting again. You know, it's great to witness what, as a fan, what City are doing on the pitch um, week in, week out, because you you always refer back to the mid-90s and go, yeah. And I was at Port Vale. I was. I was there. Um, so it's just, you know, it's great to see beating Real Madrid and things like that. But yeah, the you'll never you'll never match the Aguero goal. Sorry, Nedim, I know you were. You were there at the time. Uh, oh, what happened? I forget. I forget what happened. Uh, you want to tell me one more time? It was. It was. It, it was two two. Nedum. <laughs> oh, then, that game. That game. Yeah. Not, yeah okay. As is a question from Lee Nadum. Question about Pep. How come no coach has been able to work out an effective system method to stop his teams consistently? It's been the case in three countries now for fifteen years. The only person to get close is Klopp. I get that he has elite players. It's clearly not just. That I mean, we've talked about this, you know, everything is in place to make him successful, but he still has to do it. Yeah, he does. And, you know, you say the point about Klopp doing it, but Klopp, interestingly, he does it at Anfield and City at Anfield have won once there since two or twice, maybe, sorry, since 2001. So that's not necessarily all Klopp through those years as well. But Anfield's obviously a tough place to play. A lot of the teams struggle there. But Liverpool, I think, haven't won at City since like maybe 2016. So I don't necessarily believe that he has a system that stops them. But then ultimately for the City side, they change throughout the season. You know what I mean? They change every season and throughout the season based on the sort of needs that are required for any particular game. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why they've ended up being champions this year because they're adaptable. And ultimately you can cr- try and create a plan, but you need the pieces to fall together. Like you need a team that can soak up pressure really well, but then also have a really good outball and people can get up to support them which was similar to, say, the Brentford win at the Etihad uh, in November last last year. But most teams don't have that. You need, like, the Leicester City model, where you had Jamie Vardy, the quickest man on earth, desperate to run into a channel Should you after your team's been under pressure, and then have Riyad Mahrez come and support him. Like, not every team has that. So I think you sort of have to sacrifice something, unfortunately. And no one's trying to build a team specifically just to stop City, because you only play them twice a year anyway. So you've got your own, your own issues, your own dilemmas, and... You just hope that on the day the matchup works out. But yeah, it's it's football, it's coaching. Like City, they like a possession-based style, but then with lots of really good players, ultimately, like, do you have a lot of really good players and can you handle not having the ball? Well, for most teams, the answer is no. And City aren't perfect because you can still, you know, stifle them to a certain extent. But 
when they're on their day, as we saw with Real Madrid, they're as good as anyone can be. And um, yeah, I don't know if there's a strategy that would help that, given the fact that they're so adaptable. I did like in Johnny Lee's report uh, when he referenced, you know, they did get the chance to see Raheem Sterling through on goal and miss a one-on-one. You know, there is a sense of history about this side. Um, <laughs> it was a nice line, wasn't it? And Fraser got in touch to say, I tweeted out for questions on the subject of, you know, the charges uh, against City. He said, I love it how there's simultaneously people accusing you of talking about the Man City charges both too much and too little in the replies. So perhaps we're getting that balance right. Um, look, it was all confirmed because Arsenal lost at Nottingham Forest and... That means that Nottingham Forest have survived in the Premier League, Barry. And that, for Steve Cooper, is it's it's just such an amazing achievement. There are so many. And we were as guilty as anyone else at laughing at, like, how many people. They were, oh, Serge Aurier's turned up. Oh, who's this? Who's that? No idea. They don't know each other. And he has somehow managed to fashion that into a team that are going to play in the Premier League next year. Yeah, everyone was laughing at the number of players they brought in. But the fact of the matter is that they needed players because if they hadn't brought in loads of players... They'd have had about six starters um, because the team that came up was more or less completely dismantled. There was loan signings, players out of contract who left, blah, blah, blah. So they had to bring in loads of new players. Steve Cooper was tasked with the job with turning them into a team. At times, it looked like he was going to fail. On more than one occasion, it looked like he was going to get sacked. He didn't get sacked. He got a... more most recently a, a vote of confidence that didn't have much in the way of confidence in it but it was just more a statement that he was still employed by the club and they'd see how things went and now he's kept up the team um some you know outstanding players for Forrest this season uh Morgan Gibbs White Brennan Johnson and then Tayo Anani's goals have been priceless for them because he scored a number of goals in in 1-0 wins. He scored two in a 2-2 draw. He scored one in a 4-3 win. And has, you know, obviously he he's not doing this alone, but he's if for want of a better word single-handedly I think acquired 16 points for them with his goals. And then I don't think the importance of the crowd at the city ground can be overstated. They've the the forest a lot of Premier League fan, uh, stadiums are you know, the the atmosphere in them is pretty dire. But Forest uh, and Newcastle as well this season and Crystal Palace is always a good atmosphere there. But Forest has been a real cauldron for visiting teams and they've needed that because their away form has been so diabolical. But uh, it's a tremendous achievement for them and for, for Cooper. I've, I wanted to ask you that, Nadam, about the atmosphere at the City Ground. I've been once in a League Cup match where Cambridge came back from 3-0 down to 3-3 and lost on penalties. It was heroic. Um, but like, you do often hear journalists, annex pros, saying the atmosphere here is great about basically everywhere in football because it sort of curries favour with the fan base. I haven't seen Nottingham Forest in the Premier League. I haven't been there, but like you've played against them. Is that one of the grounds where you go, oh, this is actually quite a fiery atmosphere or is it just better this year because they're in the Premier League than when perhaps you've played them? Okay, so this is going to be the bit that might get me in trouble, yeah? Um, respectfully. Good, good. I th- respectfully, yeah. I think there are stadiums like that which have the history, which have the generations of knowing that they've been there and they're very comfortable there. But those stadiums are also very good when the team's doing well. You know, when the team's not doing so well, some of that passion then gets delivered onto the field to the home team. So at times it's like a real mix because you saw this, um, 
I've seen this with like Sunderland in the past, I've seen this with like Newcastle in the past. When things are toxic, some of the home players, you get the feeling they're not looking forward to going to play there. But given the fact that Cooper's there and he got them into the Premier League, there was always a sense of positivity, even though there were other things which maybe weren't going their way as such. Like they sing for the manager. They obviously like some of the players, some of the 30, but they love the manager. So as a consequence, they're not going to throw the towel in on him whilst he's in charge. So it makes for a spot where, you know, they will push, push and push and hope things get better, but still have belief in someone. But as is the case with some of these places and just football in general, if a, if a fan base doesn't have belief, as they turn up, what are they hoping to see? And when things start to go wrong, they're hardly going to be just singing songs and say, this is okay, we're losing again. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> That's a great chant, though. This is okay. This hey, is okay. We're losing again. <laughs> we're losing yeah, exactly. again. Have you ever had exactly. that name? Have you ever had that, like, where you were like, I don't really fancy it because... No, I've, I've, had, the, I've had our own fans singing, you know, we're bleeping and we know we are and all this stuff and singing we're going down and all that. You know, it's usually lots of fun. Yeah, I tend to enjoy that, yeah. Those stadiums have the potential to be great. And when there's something that they can root for, then it is tough to play there. And I, like probably many others, thought that the game for Arsenal would be one whereby, like, I couldn't, if this was early in the season, I'd say Arsenal all day long. But because of the fact that for Forest, the carrot was there whereby if they won a game, they would stay up. That's going to be the best version of that fan base. Outside of a derby, that's the best version of the fan base. And it will affect the way that you play. It will affect the way someone referees a game. And for the for the home team, it's like a big boost. And as soon as you've got something to hold on to, all of a sudden, they don't just celebrate goals. It's like, oh, it's a tackle. Yeah. It's a throwing. Yeah. It's a free kick. Yeah. And you're like walking off the pitch thinking, oh, what an incredible game that was where we had 15% possession. <laughs> you know what I mean? All of a sudden, the stat doesn't matter because you got the win. And it feels great because you've got 30,000 people there who've basically been like supporting you throughout. So, yeah, that's my overall answer is, when there's hope, it can be fantastic. But when there's not, there is a sense of doom and gloom. And I think that's across most stadiums, to be honest. Gibbs White actually did that, didn't he? He, he uh, conceded a throw, like he put in a tackle and then like held the badge and yelled at the fans, Will. And and <laughs> he actually, as Barry mentioned it, he's been amazing. In the, Like every time you watch them, Johnson's been great, but you watch Gibbs White and you, it's quite, quite hard to gauge, but like he really could go sort of really quite near to the top. I believe. I mean, he's already quite near the top in relative terms, but you take my point. There's a, there was a reason last summer that Steve Cooper made him the number one target for him personally. He, you know, it took ages to get the deal done. A lot of back and forth with Wolves. Cooper was offered a lot of alternatives. Go, we could get this. You know, we get things done quicker. And we, you can have knowledge of what your squad's going to look like for the rest of the season. Um, but Cooper insisted that they keep doing. You know, fair play to everyone at Forest it, it got done because he's shown what he does you know he he's the most creative player in the team he incredible behind the strikers when depending on which formation they play but you know the times where Forest struggled from January onwards was when Shelby was in the team and Shelby's passing and position sort of got in the way of what Gibbs White does best and you know Shelby was more of a long ball man you know wants to play those massive diagonals which then just takes Morgan gives White out of the team. And so once Shelby kindly walked off by you know, falling out with Cooper, it was uh, better for Forrest because Gibbs White got to do what he does best again. He's great on set pieces. That goal against Southampton with a little flick to Danilo is 
Oh, yeah. The level you have to be at to have those thought processes in that second just to be able to cushion it with the, you know, with, the, with your instep and for an on-running player is, is incredible. Yeah, he's been their best player. And I think with Forrest, obviously, we all talk about the signings, and, right, and rightly so, but it shows that it just takes time naturally for players to settle. You know, the the spine of the team now of Niakate, Mangala and Awani, um, you know, with Gibbs White thrown into the mix there, taking time to settle. And now they are. They're doing really well. They all know their jobs. They know their roles. Awani's scoring goals for fun, you know. Nine, nine goals in your first Premier League season when actually didn't start that much at the beginning. Cooper's made mistakes. You know, he said after the game that this is the first season where he knew he was going to lose a lot of games. But he went quite bold early on, which I think he's accepted was an error of only two midfielders. And he, he didn't fancy Owen Eve early on. He you know took time for him to trust him to, to start him. But now that everyone's settled and a few of those January signings have come good, like Navas, Felipe and Danilo, they are a cohesive unit and it's been more of a cohesive unit in recent weeks. And obviously you mentioned Cooper's relationship with the fans. If you could indulge me for an anecdote for a second. Please. So before the Brighton game, um, which they'd not won in ages, Cooper's job's on the line. If they lost that, I reckon they probably would have gone down because momentum was against them. Cooper picked up the phone and phoned up one of the uh, academy kids, 13, 14-year-old, suffered a really bad injury just before that Brighton game. Talked him through the recovery process and everything that he needs to do and you know the, how the club will support him and then invited him to the Brighton game to be the you know guest of honour for Cooper. And it just it's just a sign of how how much he interacts with the club and how he understands the club. And it's you know when the pressure was on, he had the time and thought process that he would you know when he jumps on the line to to do that. I thought it was a it was a very good very good thing to do. And yeah, it's an indication of how ingrained he is within the infrastructure there. All right, they're safe. Then Nottingham Forest, which means that uh, uh, two of Everton, Leeds, and Leicester will go down. We'll cover them in just a second. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So then the bottom of the table looks like this. Uh, Southampton are done. Leicester have 30 points from 36. They play Newcastle tonight. Leeds, 31 from 37. Everton, 33 from 37. Let's do it chronologically, Baz. Everton got that late point. 90 plus nine uh, minute goal involving all three centre-backs to get an equaliser at Wolves. Michael Keane, James Karakowski and Yerry Mina, the, the unlike could be the unlikely saviours and events at the London Stadium yesterday. I mean, this could be a massive, massive, massive point for Everton. Sean Dyche was asked after the game, you know, how big is this point going to be? And he was like, well, we don't know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it it might not be important. But um, yeah, it could be huge. Everton are not a good side. A side that is pretty poor is going to stay up. Beginning to look not so much through anything they do themselves, but just due to the slightly more hideous shortcomings of others. Sean Dyche is certainly getting more attuned out of them than Big Sam is at Leeds. And the smart money at the moment would suggest it is them who will stay up, but, you know, we can't be sure. What did you make of this, Nathan? I mean, there's something fun about kitchen sink, you know, Pickford up. It's just a hoy into the box. There is zero, not even sort of Dyche-type get to the byline, cross it in. It's just, can you... 
can you kick the ball near the goal, please? I think it was Damari Gray who crossed it in. It's like, you know, boot it there, please. You know what? I've got to give him a bit of credit here for this goal. Obviously, the goal itself is like, you know, it's the kitchen sink, as you say. But there's so many elements where it could go wrong. Because I've been involved in those where everyone goes forward and then the ball like hits the first man, yeah? Or like someone's offside at the back post or somebody just has a wild shot with the back, you know, back to goal and all this stuff. But instead, it's like they just kept it alive and that means you're always in with a chance. And for Wolves or whichever team's trying to defend those moments, it's quite tough because, you know, you spent all week like preparing for set pieces. So, right, I'll mark him, you mark him or we'll be in this zone. And then all of a sudden, there's just people everywhere and... Don't get me wrong. People do try, but all your attackers standing in the box is like a goalkeeper's next to them. They're not thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to do this. You're going to do that. They just exist. So the moment actually favours the team that's throwing everything at, at the opposition. But that that belief and that goal, like, obviously they'll be watching tonight's game, the Leicester-Newcastle one and Newcastle-Leicester rather. But as it stands, it's in their hands and they've done found a way to do it. I wouldn't say it's necessarily glamorous, but at this point in the season, it doesn't need to be. And the hope is, and this is what kills you, having speaking from experience here, Max, sometimes you, you'll stay up and think, okay, we'll build again for the next year. And little do you know, you actually uh, start going backwards, but we'll <laughs> see. I think that I think there might be all right. Yeah, credit we'll producer see. Joel, who says relegation still whangs in the balance for everything as they failed to win at Wolves. Uh, enjoyed that. I mean, some classic Adama Traore for that Wolves goal. If he could just do that every single game, every single time he got it, he'd be amazing. Yes, Nadem? I was just going to say, that's the thing with Traore. What he did is what a lot of people think he does all the time, but he literally never does that. Never does it. <laughs> no. oh, you know, you're just really quick and really strong. You're a good dribbler. Like, just get the ball, just be really strong and just run really fast. But he rarely does it. He's one of the most, like, he's obviously very good, but it's so confusing because people as well, they think, because he's done that now, I guarantee you people will be so nervous when they play against him going forward, even though the likely the chance of him doing that again is so slim because he literally hasn't done it before. It's like once every six months, isn't it? Like, you know, it's just the Traore, like, I can do this. You think, well, just do it do it again, mate. It's a really good idea, isn't it? <laughs> Interestingly, on the injury time, Ruben never said, we've never seen that during the season. The referee said that they've been told to give the exact time in the last two games. So they've gone World Cup. They've gone Qatar World Cup on injury time. I don't know why they haven't done it throughout all the season. It is interesting. We'll get on to injury time in the Liverpool-Villa game because it was it was fun in that one. So anyway, that point was important. And then at the London Stadium, Will, Leeds went to West Ham. And I really fancied them. Look, West Ham, and we'll get on to them getting to the, the European final because that's huge for them. You just thought, this is a, a game you can definitely win. And they didn't. They've done the same thing the last couple of games where they've started really well and sort of tailed off. It was interesting listening to Luke Ayling afterwards who just said, we haven't got the same energy that we used to. So probably the, the hangover of the Bielsa years really taken effect on some of their players that, you know, the legs the legs have gone a bit at the end of the season, you know. When he was at Athletic Bilbao Bielsa, I think some of those players never recovered from, from his management. They don't have the confidence, it seems, to, you know, finish the chances they create, they looked really good in between the halfway line and the penalty area, but just didn't have that cutting edge in the end. It's it's not a big Sam team. It's not made to be a big Sam team. The squad isn't right for him. And he's he's doing what he thinks he can, but it's it's just a team short on confidence and energy, which is <laughs> and not scoring many goals, which is always a bad sign when you're in a relegation battle. Yeah, and they started really brightly, didn't they? Rodrigo scoring from that massive throw in Weston McKenney's kind of 
slightly quarterbacky throw that he he has and he volleyed it in jeff says morning max rodrigo best goal ever from a throw-in is there a sinclair standard uh barry over to you we all know the best goal from a throw-in uh ronnie whelan uh or whelan against the soviet union uh at euro 88 so mick mccarthy hoiding the throw-in uh a throw-in which took out nine soviet players that just this looping throw-in and ronnie was in a little pocket of space on the edge of the penalty area and scored with an incredible scissors kick. Um, now, he did shin it, to be fair, uh, purists, before the purists have a goal at me, but it was an incredible goal. Renat Dasiev was in goal for the Soviet Union. He was... Ah, oh, Renat Dasiev. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how you pronounce it. But he, yes. he was no slouch. He won goalkeeper of the year that year. Yeah, if anyone wants to to stick it in YouTube, just go put in Ronnie Whelan, uh, Soviet Union, Euro 88, and it'll come up. It's well worth a look if you haven't seen it. Really was the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, I think it broke up shortly after. They were so crushed by (laughs) Ronnie's. Uh, Oh, yeah, Ireland ended up drawing that game 1-1. But um, Will did uh, have possibly a better goal from a throw-in. Uh, which he posted on the WhatsApp group. Yeah, it's it's what I've got. I've got more respect for. It brought down, you know, as much as the Soviet Union in my eyes was the uh, Peter Enkelman own goal in the in in the derby against Birmingham, where Olaf Melberg throws it, just casually throws it back to his goalkeeper, and he forgets how big a football is, so it leaves his foot too high. <laughs> it, go, it goes under his foot, and I'm not even sure he touched it, but he was so crushed. Like, if he hadn't touched it, it doesn't count. He was so crushed by the whole situation that, that he, the referee gave the goal. Um, that was quality. Yeah, that's like honour rule, isn't it? Because I, I also think that he didn't touch it, but it's one of those times in your career, probably, where this thing's never happened before, so you just assume that it's going to be a goal. But then it's the way to sort of cheat it a little bit. Because do you remember, um, this is going back a little bit now as well. Do you remember when Pedro Mendes had a shot, I think, for Portsmouth? And it went over the line, Roy Carroll dropped the it Spurs. in. Spurs, it was for Spurs. Oh, Spurs, I yeah. I remember it. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. And it was the last just... minute and it went in by about two miles. Yeah, yeah. but then Roy, Roy Carroll's are looking at him and saying, what are you looking at? What's the problem? Nothing's <laughs> happened here. Nothing's happened here yeah. at all. Like if that was Enkelman, he's probably going to give the goal. And interestingly, in, in terms of long throws, I tried to think of some. So I went into YouTube to search for long, best long throws because that's who I am. And honestly, the Rory Delat ones are a myth because I was getting so much trauma watching them back. They're a myth, Max. They're so, he did everything. He had the like really high deep one. He had the flat lot, like the flat short one. He had a bit of curl on some of them, and then put into the fact you're playing at Stoke and there's a breeze affecting it. And with because you're playing against Stoke, like. You'd be thinking, oh, first ball. So you're going up against the likes of Shaw, Cross, and stuff like that. But behind you, you've got Ricardo Fuller and Peter Crouch. There's there's no set, there was no way to deal with this situation, Max. It was horrendous. And it was so bad that for one of the goals that he scored, which was against Arsenal, he threw it in. Someone headed it in. Colo Soria was so confused, he put his hand up for offside. <laughs> That's how confusing the moment was. So it's not a myth. It's, it's, I thought you were going to no, say it's, it's mythically it's, difficult. It's no, mythically, no, it's mythically right, difficult. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it shouldn't be like this. It's not real. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it was so flat. Like, his really flat one was ridiculous. I and mean, we're getting away from Leeds' struggles a, a little bit. Um, Big Sam's appointment, Barry, it would appear, has not worked. He's currently on £500,000 per point, which is pretty good if you can get it. 
Yeah, and and the fiver he picked up yesterday, obviously. So that's five hundred thousand and five pounds. He's mm, the fiver was great, wasn't it? Because not only was there some good banter with the fourth official, Carl Robinson. It's possibly the funniest moment in Carl Robinson's life, as far as I can tell. Anyway, I thought that performance yesterday was dismal, and the fact that Leeds played pretty well against Newcastle in the the first, you know, half hour and drew then played pretty well yesterday for 25 minutes and got round soundly beating does as we'll say sort of lend creams to, to luke ailing's post-match pontification about their lack of fitness but um i mean the third goal they conceded even though it was you know deep and added time was an absolute joke uh <laughs> just a defensive horror show which i'm sure will have enraged big salmon his post-match Comments didn't suggest he was very hopeful. There may be some sort of psychology at play there, but they were dreadful yesterday, like dreadful. And it's a match they should have been full of confidence going into. You know, West Ham had nothing to play for. They were resting quite a few key players, albeit, you know, the the midfield was the same as the one that uh, lined up in the Alkmaar game. But, um, yeah, it was a pretty dismal effort on Leeds' part, I thought. Nice for Declan Rice. Um, uh, we'll, we'll get on to bad lap, lap of honours or laps of honour. Um, not laps of Anuaha, the Soccer M Glory years, eh, Ned? And we all remember those. Oh, uh, was that you? Was that you? Oh, my yes. fault. Quality uh, it was a mate, honestly, sensation. Surprising people don't talk about it more often. Um, uh, <laughs> Michael says, am I allowed to get really carried away with West Ham getting to a European final or am I not allowed to? They'll win over AZ Alkmaar means they play Fiorentina in the final on the 7th of June. We can give it real focus on the Thursday pod the day after that. Winning a trophy is once in a generation for West Ham fans. 1980, Trevor Brookings' rare-headed goal. Of course, there, whatever you think of the Conference League, of course West Ham should be like over the moon that they're in this final and just like, what a great opportunity. Yeah, and it helps that they're playing a very famous name in European football in Fiorentina. And it's taken a lot of hard work to get there. They're Premier League status was on the line at one stage because they've had to play in Thursday nights and Sundays and it takes a strain on a, a squad, which was quite low in confidence at certain stages of the, of the campaign. So, yeah, enjoy it. You know, I'm sure I'm sure when August came around and the group stage draw for the Conference League was made, you were probably like, oh, yeah, I don't care. But now you've got to the latter stage, you've beaten some good teams and, you know, nice away day in Prague. You know, have a time of your life semi-final second leg was not a classic but you know Altmar quite a good team at home actually so I think they've been unbeaten in 25 or something in European competitions at home so they did really really well had their moment in Pablo Fornells in, the, in injury time so they could celebrate um, and it'd be a lovely way for Declan Rice to finish it off wouldn't it so look let's look at the bottom of the table and ask who is going down obviously Newcastle play Leicester a point would be massive for Leicester actually and a point would guarantee um, Newcastle Champions League football unless I'm mistaken and then Everton have Bournemouth, Leeds have Tottenham, and Leicester have West Ham. All Barry winnable. Uh, and they're all at home, which um, obviously means there will be scenes of total despair at two grounds next Sunday and, and unbridled jubilation at another. Uh, which, which ground is which? I think Leicester have looked down and out for quite some time. I think Newcastle could hockey them tonight. It's looking grim for Leeds as well as things stand, but 
you know, who knows? Cambridge, it looked very bleak for Cambridge on the last day of the League One season, and they somehow managed to stay up, so anything could happen. Anything could happen. Um, uh, you're right. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, we're going to Anfield. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so Liverpool won, Aston Villa won. Result means Liverpool just fall short of the Champions League places. So that is a bad season, Nadam, for Liverpool. But it feels good in the way that it has ended. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I suppose the way you finish does make a big difference in terms of how the feel is. But yeah, the fact that they've not really been in a tight race and for long parts of the season, they were sort of closer to mid-table than they were part of that top four does seem very, very strange. But they are giving people a reason to believe that they can be back next season because at one point it's like crisis Liverpool. They've got no midfielders. All the legs have gone. Nobody's capable of winning a game anymore. Everything's terrible. But then they went on a very good run and they sort of asked the question, will they, ask the question of Newcastle and Man United, will you guys be consistent enough to get over the line? It looks like they will do that. So, yeah, so it's a weird season. Strange not seeing them being a part of the conversation, but this is the way the football goes sometimes. You know, for some teams, it's a cycle and I'm sure they'll try and build in the summer in terms of bringing in the right sorts of players and try and find that spark again. And, you know, for them, it's turned into like Fortress Anfield again. I think if they can address some of the away form, which was particularly bad earlier in the season, then they'll be right. They'll be right there again. The manager is going to be motivated to do well. The player is going to be motivated to do well because they wouldn't have enjoyed the season nowhere near as much as they had the previous ones. And yes, I suppose it's a good finish, but then you'd also like to have won against Villa because Villa looked like they'll be half decent next year as well. So if you would have been able to put a marker down on them, then I think people leave with that little bit more sort of like hope and expectation as well. If you look at the games that Liverpool have won, it's still an excellent run. Um, but Villa are sort of the best team that they've come up against by quite some considerable margin. And they are excellent, Villa. Adam says, will you actually talk about Villa this week and how well they're doing, have been doing, could do next season, how they play, why they're a better team under Emery, rather than, oh, and Villa played well, which you seem to nearly always do, have done. And I don't know if we've completely... Sorry, that's absolute harshly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I don't know what podcast he's been listening to, but we've been singing the praises of Villa for quite some time and in quite some detail for... Yeah, several weeks, so I'm not sure where that will come. But thank you for listening, and thank you for your correspondence. <laughs> as misguided as it might be. We welcome all bullshit. They were the better team, I thought, in this game, Will, for, for large parts of it, certainly. Should have been ahead even before they, they got the opener with the penalty. Is it interesting? Well, we'll try and talk about Villa, but actually where that penalty came down the right-hand side with the new you know, hybrid position that Trent Alexander-Arnold's playing that they're you know Liverpool are having to get used to that side being a bit freer and Canate had allowed Watkins in before giving away the penalty and yeah they got you know lucky that Watkins then decided that scoring it was not the the best thing to do but Aston Villa have been really good and I think the managers that deserve the most credit this season are those that come in and turn things around because they were awful under Gerrard like truly terrible and he's brought individuals, you know, back to where they should be. You know, Watkins has been incredible. And it's just what the basics are, is getting a team organised, building a base, and then you can have a bit more excitement, you know, in the final third. And that's what they've done. And the goal from Ramsey went to the back post. He was there, lovely volley. He love a cushioned volley. 
And yeah, they're going to be a threat with a few more additions. And that's the other thing. He's, he made two signings in January to change things. It's not an overhaul. He just done the, had the same players that Gerard has, but actually made them competent. So yeah, lots of credit. Hope, hope they can build on it. Uh, at the end of this game, there was a, uh, a lot of injury time. Uh, Jürgen Klopp on the subject of time-wasting. Uh, Villa had four players booked for time-wasting, which is incredibly good. Uh, the time-wasting was, wow, he said. Ten minutes was fine. We should have an extra five minutes within the ten. Everybody's doing it. And that's a good point, isn't it, Nadem? Once you get to the 90th minute, all time-wasting after that is fair game. You could time-waste for, for five minutes from 90 plus five. They're never going to add another five. Yeah, it, this is true. Like, some referees are very, very particular with it, and they're quite annoying, to be honest. It's like, no, I'm listening. I've stopped my clock. We're going to stay here. We're going to stay here almost like the teacher vibe but if you know it's, I've got marking to do yeah, yeah. yeah. we're going to stay till 4.15 but then also you know you look at it, it how often does a home team get booked for time wasting in a match you know what I mean like it's always the away team when the whole team I've got like 40,000 people screaming like he's taken 10 seconds on the floor here you must book him because this is the biggest disgrace that's ever been seen but then, lo and behold like everyone will play the game the same way if you've got a lead what's your rush Take your time, like that's that's the sort of the way that the game goes as such. We've all been guilty of that. Even like if Liverpool had a one 0 lead, I'm sure their players would have been doing the same thing to just run the clock down. But I don't know, man. Every referee is different. But I think it's so funny at times when something which you would do yourself all of a sudden really upsets you because now it's not going in your favour, and it's like you're now blinded by the fact that these guys are wasting time when that's just the way that the game's played. Unfortunately, have you ever had cramp when you didn't actually have cramp? Unfortunately for me, being a defender, I couldn't really go down because it means I'd have to go off. So I would just have right. cramp and not be able to run. But still, oh. it's like, well, unfortunately, I can't uh, I can't really sandbag this because it kind of affects the flow of the game. But attackers, though, oof, they're so they're so brave, some of those guys, the way yeah. they go down with that invisible cramp and then you know find a way to come back on. Fair play to them. It's medically proven you can only get cramp if you're winning. That is a that is true. Ah, so that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, look, there were lots of tearful goodbyes and some not quite as tearful goodbyes. Um, uh, Naby Keita, Alex Oxlade, Chamberlain, James Milner, and Bobby Firmino. Um, and uh, Firmino was looking very emotional. And and you know he's done everything at Liverpool, right? He's won everything. He absolutely brilliant in that three bath. Yeah. Um... He's been a wonderful servant for them. He's a fantastic player. He's a very likable guy. Um, his teammates seem to genuinely love him. And uh, he will be missed. Um, I'm not sure what the future holds for him. Does anyone know? But uh, some some team out there, and I presume a pretty good team, is going to get a very, very good striker uh, this summer. Speaking of who knows where they'll be, Harry Kane scored a free kick. He never scores free kicks. You sort of think, well, he's done that. That's it. He can go now. Technically, um, Max, it wasn't yeah, a free kick. I was going to say, Max, relax. Rain on your fact parade. Check, fact check, fact check. But it, it, it yeah. fake news. Yeah. It, was a, it was a free kick. What's he going to do, Will? What's Harry Kane going to do? 28 goals. Sort of 28 goals for Spurs is almost as good as 36 for City, isn't it, really? And, and it's such a great season he's had amidst... What has been disastrous and actually got worse since Conte left, which I just didn't think was possible. Um, what's he going to do? It's an interesting one. He's stuck with a <laughs> tough decision of staying and continuing his legendary status at Spurs or leaving to actually go and win something. It must be so frustrating as a striker to score that many goals and then just to look at the other end and go, oh, oh God, we've, scored, we've conceded three again. 
Oh, oh god! I'm going to have to kick off, you know, every five minutes. <laughs> well, I was at I was at the uh, Liverpool game where they they went three 0 down in fifteen minutes and came back. And I was just thinking throughout this whole thing, what what enjoyment do you get out of this, Harry? Like, surely you're good enough to play for pretty much any team in Europe to that you know that have proper defenders that work in a system that occasionally stops the opposition from shooting. I think he should leave. You know, I think he needs to take it on the chin. He thought about leaving before and just say to Daniel, his first name terms with Daniel, just to say, just to point out in all these statements. So I always refer to him as Daniel in brackets, Levy. Um, and he just needs to go and move on and maybe give Spurs the kick up the arse they need to make things better and not rely solely on one individual. Nadem? Oh, Max, how long have we got? How long have we got? Not long. Okay, I won't say anything then. I'll save this. I'll save this for another show. We'll talk about. Oh, no, I want to know what it is now. No, I want to know what it is. It's now. just a lot of Harry Kane talk, but it's not short. So well, I'll save it for another show. I'll save it for another show, please. But thank you. Just put a pen in this opinion just okay, for a while. Okay. Okay. I guarantee it'll come out. Yeah. Right. I'm intrigued. Um. Any, yeah. Anyway, look. Villa Spurs Brentford get seventh, eighth, and ninth in some order. Uh. Eighth, seventh gets Conference League. Eighth, eighth gets nothing. And you wonder if the new Spurs manager, whoever that is. Uh, as multiple people turn it down or don't want to do it or <laughs> turn their phone off, uh, would probably rather not having anything, I imagine. Uh, Lucas Moura's final home appearance, worth remembering his hat-trick versus Ajax is the greatest moment in their recent history. For Brentford, Baz, look, they didn't have Ivan Tony. They didn't miss him on Saturday. It'd be interesting to see what they do recruitment-wise for that sort of little hiatus. To, to be fair, Johan Wisser seems to have always done a job whenever he's been called upon for Brentford and he, he did again on, on Saturday. Another weird Spurs performance. They were good in the first half, should have put the game beyond. Brentford didn't and paid a heavy price uh, because Brentford were far more clinical than them. Uh, Brian and Wemo scored two fine goals. A shout out to Aaron Hickey for that wonderful pass for uh, the second one. Brentford's second goal up the inside of, of Ben Davies. Brentford are an exciting prospect and looking at, at the the two managers standing side by side uh, on Saturday, you wonder if maybe Thomas Frank wouldn't be a terrible uh, appointment by Spurs if they could convince him to leave Brentford. Um, he's a, a hugely impressive manager and uh, the job he's done at Brentford is is bordering on incredible. It's a it's a brilliantly run club, and he's a major cog in the wheel. Uh, another win for Manchester United at Bournemouth. Um, Casemiro's overhead kick, uh, some finish, wasn't it? They need one point from the last two games to secure the top four. They've won the League Cup. Um, how do we rate Ten Hag's season, Nadem? Uh, unless this is a big opinion, want to put a pin in and can't tell <laughs> us. Uh, uh, and, and how much does it rest on whether he can stop City winning the treble? That FA Cup final is going to be so exciting, isn't it? I think, so it obviously started badly and then they were they were on the run after, the, the, such a good run after the World Cup where it felt like they were right there. There was a point when they were three points behind Man City and I think it's probably six or seven behind Arsenal and the talk was, well, are they in a title race? Are they, you know, somebody, some producer decided, are they going to win everything, you know, because they were in Europe as well? Obviously, that kind of fell apart and they've seen, they've shown a few weaknesses, especially away from home. But if they finish the season and they've won two trophies, that's a very, that, that's a very good season. You know, that's the winning mentality as such, coming back to a club which hasn't really seemed like they've had it. And as well, to look at this year, 
Like he's the manager that basically told Ronaldo, you're not the right fit for me so you can go somewhere else. That's remarkable in itself because most managers wouldn't have done that and they probably would have had him still there at this point in the season now, unhappy or whatever. So I think he's been a he's been good for Man United. I can see his strengths. I think as the season progressed, he's shown some of the weaknesses. But if you win a Manchester derby in an FA Cup final, I think the fans will be pretty happy with you. And you can say that's a very, very good season. So I think I think he's done well. But I'm still uh, hoping that one trophy is enough for Man United for this year. Speaking of managers and how they've done, Gary O'Neill, I presume, Will, you know, you're talking about managers who've come in and turned a team around, and he has done that. Not in the manager of the year shortlist, Arteta de Zerbi, Emery, Guardiola, Howe, and Marco Silva are. I mean, it's a sign there are lots of good managers in the Premier League, which I guess, since it's the best paid place to be a manager, is not really a surprise. But I think you also need to look at, with Gary O'Neill, appointing him was a massive risk, you know. Emery, Lepetigui coming in, turn things around. Hodgson, you know, he's probably twice the age of Gary O'Neill. But appointing him was a risk that you don't really need to take in the Premier League. You can attract top managers who have done, been there, done that, you know, got various T-shirts from relegation scraps. But he came in and he did well and he started off. And I'm always weary of people that do well as a caretaker and get appointed. <laughs> I always assume it's going to fall apart very, very quickly after that. And, it, and they did have massive struggles and I thought they'd they'd go. But he, he's kept the team together. They've won big games when they've had to surprise teams. You know, they're very welcome to have their days on the beach, you know, for the final few games of the season. And that's what you, you get as a as a club who have a plan, that they've got a squad that they know how to use. And Gary O'Neill was there before and so knows what it is at his best, Scott Parker. You know, griping after every game about recruitment and things like that probably didn't help the uh, mentality. But, you know, O'Neill's harnessed what they've got and they're doing really well and they're going to get another wave of money from new ownership and TV rights and something they can kick on. Brighton beat Southampton 3-1. Fulham and Palace drew 2-2 in games that didn't affect a whole lot of things. Brighton are in Europe and we have a chance uh, on Thursday to talk about them in a, a bit more detail after their game with Manchester City. Also, we've got a pod tomorrow and there is space for a mailbag. We'll, we'll do Newcastle Leicester, of course. So uh, any interesting questions, uh, footballweekly at theguardian.com to the playoffs. Um, uh, Sheffield Wednesday against Peterborough, Barry, was absolutely extraordinary wasn't it? I was doing the Europa League and so I wasn't really following it and then I just looked at my Twitter when it, the show had finished and people were saying, has anyone checked on Max? I was like, what's happened to me? Is this, is this more just abuse from somewhere? But actually it was just, uh, you know, obviously I'm not a Peterborough fan. Uh, I was delighted that they were getting hammered. But for Darren Moore on Wednesday, that was unbelievable. Incredible evening. Um, an outstanding performance that I don't think anyone saw coming. I don't think even the most optimistic Wednesday fans or even players could conceivably have thought, well, yeah, we can still turn this around. And yet somehow they did. And and then they kind of had to turn it around again when, when Peterborough scored in extra time. And they held their nerves for the, the penalty kicks and there were quite some quite moving scenes uh, on the touchline with, Darren Moore getting a big hug from one of his backroom staff and then that moment in the dressing room where he, he gave the speech and to his players and told them how proud he was of them and said, you know, we've still got one more game to go, one more, and, you know, that that shouldn't be overlooked. There's still a lot of work to do. 
And Barry Bannon then said his piece about kind of admitting, you know, we, our heads were down. We, we didn't really think we had a chance, but you've changed our mindset over the last week. So, so thank you and thank you to all your staff. And uh, it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And I mean, if you're a Peterborough fan, which you emphatically are not, Max, um, it, it must be just gutting, absolutely gutting. Yeah, I think if you're a lower league fan and you see the way the game is going and one goal and then two and then three, you're thinking, oh, no. And that goal, the 98th minute, that fourth goal is just totally wild. It's worth digging it out. You know, it's just the scenes are just quite extraordinary. And for Darren Mornadham, obviously Linvoy Primus is the nicest man in football, but Darren Moore is the second nicest man in football. And he got absolutely terrible abuse, some of it, like horrific racist abuse uh, after the first leg, you know, and and for him to turn it around, and I think it's quite interesting, you know, people say, oh, you can't be, you know, you can be too nice in football. And there is, here is evidence of someone who is just a thoroughly great man and quite gentle soul, despite the fact on the pitch, like he was a, pro, you know, a, I was going to say a big oaf, like he was better than that, but you know what I mean? Like he was a tough as nails. It is a sign that you can be nice and be a professional footballer or a professional football manager. For sure, you can be nice and you can have nice things happen to you. And it's not, it's good when you, stuff like that happens. It's easy to support people like that. Obviously, unless you're a Sheffield United fan or something, in which case, you know, you revel in the misery of that first leg. But I like the fact that he was trying to show to the team that it's not all done yet. You know, creating a plan because as a manager, you could get involved in all sorts of emotions and almost give up. But he, he knew the belief was there. And obviously, you need an element of good fortune as well. Because if Peterborough would have scored first in that game, all of a sudden, needing five goals is a different energy. But when you can chip it away one at a time, like, you ride your luck, you have the moment. And he's so, he is a really, really nice guy. And I felt terrible for him after that first leg, given how much pressure they were under going into the playoffs. For them to sort of lay, well, just have that nightmare that they did. It was a shame, but it's a great moment for them. But again, even going into the final, he understands there's still one more game to go. For as good as this is, there's still more to go. And I, it would be nice if he happened to be able to celebrate a moment like that at Wembley, because I'm sure he's worked very hard to be in that position. But you know, the same could be said for the other team in there as well. So I'm happy that he's there. And you were right, Limboy Primus is one, but Darren Moore is definitely number two. One final point you may have seen at Sheffield Wednesday tweeting afterwards that can you help in the aftermath of this comeback on Thursday? Lee Gregory's mask is missing. The custom-built protective cover was near the dugout. Due to a short turnaround, we cannot replace it in time for next week. Anyone else? Any ideas where it might be? And Louis tweeted, yeah, my dad picked it up after the game. DM me. I'll get it to him before Monday and sent a picture of it, uh, which is great. Isn't it? <laughs> they will play completely forgotten about Barnsley in the final at the weekend, which is actually quite a hard one to call. I mean, Wednesday should be the favourites. They got more points, but Barnsley are not a bad side. League Two's playoff final will be Stockport-Carlisle. After Stockport got past Salford and Carlisle got past Bradford, uh, we will cover all of those uh, uh, in a playoff final special after they've all been played. On tomorrow's pod, we'll cover uh, the racism that Vinicius Jr. has suffered. It's happened a lot this season, but uh, quite remarkable comments from Javier Tebas, the, the head of La Liga, afterwards on social media. Uh, we'll cover that. And we'll cover the Bundesliga, which is still alive. And Dortmund, actually, it is in Dortmund's hands, which is extraordinary, uh, isn't it? Uh, uh, here's an email from Matthew. says, hi, Max and team. First came across Football Weekly during the first lockdown in 2020. Been a regular listener and fan ever since. During good times and bad times, the team has kept my spirits up. You've become good companions. Barry seems to be on fire with his predictions. At the start of the season, he said Liverpool would struggle to achieve a top four finish. He was spot on. 
Last week, he correctly predicted that Philip Schofield would not last much longer as co-presenter of This Morning. I can't wait to hear his next prediction. Is Barry our new Mystic Meg? Uh, I hope you enjoy the summer break when it comes. Um, uh, Jeremy says, since the news was announced over the weekend, how much time are you going to devote to Philip Schofield leaving this morning instead of hastily adding a voice note after the pod has been recorded? And Ian says, with Schofield gone, is it finally time for Rushton, the Rushton glory years on this morning? What do you reckon, Baz? Do you reckon that could be new for me? I reckon I could do that. Yeah, I think you're perfect for the job. You're sort of vaguely presentable, quite bland, quite <laughs> affable. You know, you'd, you'd be sort of playing second fiddle to Holly, Willoughby, which I think is something Philip wasn't really happy to do, and that was ultimately led to his, his downfall. He stepped away from the show, but, you know... Reading between the lines, it's quite obvious that he was pushed. I'm very happily, you know, I'd very happily play second fiddle. I mean, I've done it before on TV shows, as you know, Barry. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I think the cooking bit I could do. When it, the sort of fashion section, I haven't seen this morning for a while. I wouldn't say that in my interview, obviously, but the fashion bit I might struggle with. You know, don't they like bring out some dress, some people in, you know, here's what Dorothy Perkins are doing and some models wander up and down a catwalk. You'd never do a catwalk, would you? <laughs> Max, you'd never do a catwalk on a show, I don't would you? Think, never. I don't think I actually. I think the catwalk, we, I didn't do the catwalk. That was, you know, I was, I was better than that. As someone that worked for ITV for five years and was once told by a very senior member of management, Will, you're not very ITV. Right. Due to my, due to my non-cheery demeanour. I wonder if now that Philip Schofield's gone, we're in the same bracket, that we're, we're no longer, <laughs> we're not very ITV. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Am I ITV? What do you reckon? You, you, your cardigan says no. Are you serious? Yeah. O often when people would wear a cardigan in the office, people would just turn to them and shout, cardigan, oh, God. cardigan. I didn't think clobber so. banter went... I thought football dressing rooms were the worst place for, you know, where'd you get your trousers from? Silly trouser land. Who knew now that, that in ITV that Eamon <laughs> Holmes was just, you know, yeah. ripping it out of people for wearing a cardigan? Who knew? Anyway, yeah. I think that'll do for today. Uh, thanks, Will. Thanks, Max. Thanks, Barry. You're welcome. Thank you, Nadem. Thank you very much. Our Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Daniel Stevens. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.